Thanks for listening to another message from Life Christian Church. We hope it challenges and encourages you and helps you to grow in your faith. Don't forget, download our app to stay up to date with what's going on at Life. Share your prayer requests or pray for others. Read the Bible online and much, much more. Simply search for Life Christian Church in your app store. Last week, uh, I started a new series to launch the year uh, called Meaningless. Uh, It's an unusual title until you uh, turn to the book of Ecclesiastes and realize that that's a repeated theme. And uh, so we're digging through this series into the book of Ecclesiastes. If you didn't get part one, it is live now uh, on the church app or on iTunes or your uh, preferred streaming service. Uh, Just look for Life Christian Church Tasmania and uh, you will find all of our messages for the last two years uh, there that you can uh, dig into at any time. So I encourage you to look that up. But the author, uh, Solomon, uh, wrote three books. Ecclesiastes one of them. But the first book that he wrote uh, was The Song of Solomon or The Song of Songs, which is a beautiful poem. Uh, it is just a story of love, this young guy discovering love and, and romance and all that goes with that. And it's a very, very poetic and beautiful book. Uh, he wrote the book of Proverbs, uh, which we can guess he wrote probably as a, as a middle-aged man. Much of Proverbs is addressed to his son, and, and he, uh, many of the Proverbs begin with those words, my son, my son. And uh, then we have the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, which is uh, an old man looking back over his life. But the Bible tells us something about Solomon's life as an old man. Uh, 1 Kings 11.9 says, The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. And so this book that he writes in, uh, in this um, in this place, which would have been a place of incredible inner turmoil and confusion, this place where his heart had turned from God. Uh, Throughout this book of Ecclesiastes, we have three phrases or words that are repeated over and over and over. And the first one is that word meaningless, which in in the book of Ecclesiastes is repeated 35 times. This is, in fact, the opening of his letter, which sets the scene. Uh, The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. The reason why he, uh, he makes this assertion that everything is meaningless is found in verse three, where he says, what does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? And that phrase, under the sun, occurs 32 times throughout this book. And what that phrase basically means is that this is my observation as things simply appear to be. This is my observation of life, but only a life lived from the perspective where there is no spiritual reference at all, that it is just life as it is handed to us. It is life purely lived from the context of the perspective of that which is material, uh, material, that which is tangible, the things that we can touch and see and smell and feel. And for this old man who has walked with God in his younger years, he has pursued everything in life as we will unpack today. 
and uh, he has pursued all that the world has to offer. He has obtained everything that the world has to offer. And now it seems he's in this place of brokenness and it would appear at times that he's just overwhelmed even with depression. And his conclusion is that all of this, every pursuit in life lived under the sun from that humanistic perspective. He says, basically, it's like chasing the wind. If you want to try and find meaning and purpose living life from that perspective, he says it's like chasing the wind. And again, that's a phrase that occurs nine times throughout this book. It's pointless. You can't catch the wind. Neither can you find meaning and purpose living life purely from a materialistic perspective. And so he says it's meaningless, it's meaningless, it's meaningless. And so what happens then when people come to this place drawing perhaps sometimes very similar conclusions to the conclusions that Solomon draws is that they try to fill the void of empty meaninglessness with other things, which is exactly what Solomon did. Because the human heart, friends, is like some kind of vacuum that sucks into it anything that we think will bring some meaning to my life. Some sense of satisfaction. Um, Ecclesiastes 2 and 1 says this. And uh, this is a bit of an insight into some of the things that Solomon pursued and some of his uh, quite remarkable achievements. I thought in my heart, come now and I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. So I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves, had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well, the delights of the heart of man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work and this was the reward for my labor. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless a chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. And verse 17, and just listen to the, the hopelessness in this statement. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. This is pretty depressing stuff. And again, Solomon's heart, we're told in 1 Kings 11, had turned away from God. We know that what turned Solomon's heart away from God um, was women. Uh, and it's not the women's fault, that's just what turned his heart away from God. And here's the thing, friends, 
When your heart has turned away from God, it's not long before your mind is turned away from God. When your mind is turned away from God, it's not long before your whole life is turned away from God. And when your life is turned away from God, it is in that place that you try to pursue meaning and purpose and significance in whatever way you can try to find it. And here in chapter 2, Solomon tells us, I have searched and I have searched and I have searched for meaning. He's basically saying, I searched for meaning in pleasure, I searched for meaning in power, and I searched for meaning in prosperity. And I want to talk about those three things this morning. First of all, he, he says in verse 1, Come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. And he talks about four specific areas of pleasure that he indulged in. Uh, verse 8, I acquired men and women singers. That is, I had constant entertainment around me. This guy owned a band. How cool is that? Solomon was not lacking for entertainment. He tells us that he uh, pursued pleasure in wine. Verse 3, I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. And I'm sure it wasn't cask wine that he pursued. It was probably pretty good stuff. I don't know. I'm not a wine drinker. But anyway, he then talks about his downfall, the pleasure of women. Verse 8, it says, I had a harem as well, the delights of the heart of man. So he's saying, I had a mass of women available to me. And we're told uh, of this wisest man that has ever lived, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Uh, we question his wisdom on that point, I think. <laughs> but he describes his harem as the delights of the heart of man. But he says all of those pursuits of pleasure prove to be totally meaningless. Secondly, he searches in the area of power. He was an influential man. We unpacked a little bit of Solomon's background and story and successes last week. But listen to this in verse 4. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself. Solomon was an amazing, amazing visionary builder. Uh, I mean, this guy, he built the temple in Jerusalem, took seven years, a spectacular, spectacular building. But having spent seven years building the temple, he decided, well, I'll build myself a palace now. I've established the temple. I'll build myself a palace. He took 14 years to build his house, which was twice the size of the temple. It tells us he had slaves in verse 7. I bought male and female slaves, had other slaves who were born in my house. In 1 Kings 5 and 13, listen to his workforce. King Solomon conscripted laborers from all Israel, 30,000 men. He sent them off to Lebanon in shifts of 10,000 a month. So they spent one month in Lebanon and two months at home. Uh, Adoniram was in charge of the forced labor. Solomon had 70,000 carriers, 80,000 stonecutters in the hills, as well as 3,300 foremen who supervised the project and directed the workmen. That is a pretty significant workforce. So Solomon was a powerful man. So he pursued pleasure. He exercised power. He pursued prosperity. Verse 8, I amassed silver and gold for myself. And as we looked at last week, his personal income, what he paid himself. This is not the income of the nation. This is not the revenue from com commerce. This is his personal income. 
in today's terms, not in today's equivalent, in today's terms, he was paying himself about a billion dollars a year. That is insane. 1 Kings 10 and 14, the weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents. He had all the money that he could ever need for anything he ever wanted. But then he discovers, this, the, discovers the sober truth in Ecclesiastes 5 and 10. And I love this bit of wisdom. Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. And we could go on and on and on and on about the things that Solomon pursued to try and find meaning about all of his incredible achievements, his wisdom, his education. He excelled in so many pursuits. But after summarizing his search for meaning in pleasure, in power, in prosperity, he concludes in Ecclesiastes 2 and 10, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work. And this was the reward for, reward for all of my labor. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve... Everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. They tell us one thing you learn from history is that you never learn from history. Because if we fast forward to the 21st century, it's interesting that we're not looking back on these writings of Solomon going, man, how stupid were they there back then? Uh, how foolish were they? Uh, this is not a history lesson, this is a commentary on 21st century Australia. A and we're in exactly the same boat. One thing we learn from history is we don't learn anything from history. And this book describes the very same things that you will read if you leave here and go and pick up today's paper at the newsagents. Pleasure, power, prosperity are still the driving pursuits of mankind today. And ironically, the young Solomon could well have advised the older Solomon because when you dig into some of his teachings in Proverbs, he says these things, for example, Proverbs 21 and 17, He who loves pleasure will become poor. Whoever loves wine and oil will never be rich. Proverbs 31 and 2. And I wonder what his son thought in light of this had he had the opportunity to observe his older father. My son, do not spend your strength on women or your vigor on those who ruin kings. Uh, well, Dad, how's it going with your 700 wives and 300 concubines? So Solomon had known better, but he's turned from God and he finds himself trapped in this pursuit of pleasure and power and prosperity. Ecclesiastes 2 and 11, yet when I surveyed all that my, head, my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. The other day I googled quotes on money and success and found some little pearls. Here's just a few of them. Uh, Bill Wyman, the bass player for the Rolling, or the original bass player from the Rolling Stones. Uh, this is an amazing quote. Getting to the top was an exciting experience. It kept driving you. But when we arrived at the top, there was nothing there. It was empty. 
Wow. A guy called uh, George Lorimer, who uh, in the early 20th century uh, was a, a very recognized and, and quite famous journal and, and newspaper editor. And he said, it's good to have money in the things that money can buy, but it's good too to check up once in a while and make sure that you haven't lost the things that money can't buy. That good. Uh, an unknown quote or the unknown source, uh, the real measure of your wealth is how much you'd be worth if you lost all your money. That's good too, isn't it? Benjamin Franklin said, Money never made a man happy yet, nor will it. There is nothing in its nature to produce happiness. The more a man has, the more he wants. Instead of filling a vacuum, it makes one. Powerful words, aren't they? I'll whack those quotes up on the Facebook page if you would like me to. And I think Benjamin Franklin would echo the words of, uh, of Solomon who says, meaningless, meaningless. I've got to go somewhere this morning where I went in a message a couple of years ago. And I just want to touch on it briefly because it plays into this. One of the things that we learn from the Bible is that as human beings... We are made up of three distinct parts. In 1 Thessalonians 5, it tells us, God, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he tells us we've got a body, we've got a soul, and we've got a spirit. So these are the three elements that make us who we are, to oversimplify perhaps. But first of all, we are made up of a body, and we're all aware of that. It's the thing that we feed and put together, uh, put, sorry, put together, <laughs> the thing that we feed and put to bed at night. Uh, we have a soul, which is the inner person. It's the inner part of us. It's the, the mind that thinks, the will that decides, the emotions that feel. It's the inner person, the soul. Without your body, your soul is nothing. Your, your, your soul is the life within the body. But then we have the element of uh, who we are as human beings that is perhaps most neglected and perhaps many people are unaware of, and that's the spirit. It is the part of you and I that asks the deeper, more philosophical questions. Who am I? What's life all about? How did I get here? What's the world? How did it get here? Is there a God? What happens when I die? Those kinds of deeper philosophical questions are the cry of the spirit and the spirit and the capacity of spirit to ask those questions is a uniquely human feature what do I mean by that well on the face of the earth there are three types of life there is plant life animal life and human life and they're all different a plant life contains one element which is a body all a plant is. A, a, a tree uh, is alive, but it's just a body. Animal life, on the other hand, is, consists of a body and a soul. In fact, interestingly, the, the Hebrew word uh, for soul is the same word you find in the Old Testament for animal life, soul. So an animal has uh, the capacity for limited kind of response, communication if you like. You can give an animal commands and it will obey those commands. 
Uh, we know any of those who, any of us who love pets, you will know that animals display emotion. But what makes human beings different is that in addition to a body and a soul, we have a spirit that is that capacity to reach out beyond ourselves and ask those bigger life questions. Animals don't have that. You don't find dogs wandering around looking up to the sky going, wow, I wonder where I came from. Uh, You don't find a cat curled up in the corner purring away pondering the meaning of life. Uh, cats don't have a meaning to life. They're just cats. Sorry if you're a cat person. But human beings were created with the spiritual capacity designed to reach out and to connect with and to know God. And as we looked at last week, when Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes 3 and 11, God has set eternity in the hearts of man. He is basically saying mankind is created to know God. And listen to this. We are created to live a life that is governed by a personal relationship with a living God. Can I hear an amen this morning? And this whole book of Ecclesiastes is about a search. He's searching and he's searching and he's searching. And here's the really interesting thing. When God created these three different types of life on the face of the earth, he put within those three types of life a governing force. Plant life and animal life and human life have a governing principle, a governing force with e- deeply embedded in each of those types of life. So, for example, when God created plant life, uh, we are told in Genesis chapter 8, he also created seasons. Verse 22, as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, Summer and winter, day and night will never cease because in order for plant life to be perpetuated, we need seasons. God gave us seasons in order for plant life to continue that life cycle. When God created the animal world, he built into the animal a governing force, something that we call instinct. An instinct in the animal is like this little inbuilt, pre-programmed computer chip that tells that animal how to behave. Proverbs 6 and 6, Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. And friends, if you want evidence of the reality of a sovereign God and design in creation, just do a a deep study of the animal kingdom, of, of nature, and you will see deeply embedded the evidence of God. Study the, the migrating patterns of, of whales and birds. God's creation is complex and it is fascinating. It is not the result of an accident. And Jeremiah writes these words in Jeremiah 8 and 7. Even the stork in the sky knows her appointed seasons and the dove, the swift and the thrush observe the time of their migration. But here comes the kicker. But my people do not know the requirements of the Lord. Jeremiah is saying the birds observe the governing force within them 
but human beings don't. My people do not know the requirements of the Lord. Because, friends, when human beings were created, God put within human beings a governing force. He gave us His Holy Spirit. Human beings were designed to function in relationship with God where God, by His Holy Spirit, would live within them. But something went wrong. And let me ask you a question. What would happen if the plants lost their seasons? Now, us Aussies, very much aware of drought, know exactly what happens to plants when the seasons don't function as they should. They die. What would happen if an animal lost its instinct? What would happen to a migrating bird if it got halfway around uh, the world on its migrating pattern and lost that governing force? Would they get back again? No, they wouldn't. So here's the question. What do you think would happen to a human being who loses God? And there's an easy answer to that question because, again... If you go and pick up Sunday's paper, you'll read story after story after story after story after story of exactly what has happened to humanity because we have lost God. A story of human brokenness and selfishness and greed and anger and war and all of the things that go on that clearly indicate humanity is lost. Friends, when we lose God, quite simply, we just don't know how to live in the way that we were designed to live. Because again, when God created human beings, he put a governing force into human beings. God's intention is that we would be governed by the very presence of God himself. His spirit put into human experience. And so in the Garden of Eden, God said to Adam in Genesis 2 and 16, the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of, knowledge, of the knowledge of good and evil. Now listen to this. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. Now we know the story. Many of us were Adam ate. Did he drop dead? No, he didn't because God wasn't talking about physical death. He was talking about the death of that governing force, separation from God. And Paul talks about this in Ephesians 4 and 18. They're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Friends, at the fall, a lot of stuff began getting unraveled as mankind got out of touch with their governing force. And we fast forward to Solomon's story, which is reflective of countless millions and billions. When we lose that governing force, when we lose that presence of God, when we lose that awareness of God, that God void in us, then we try to fill it with all kinds of other stuff that never, ever, ever allow us to reconnect with that purpose, reconnect with that life force. And in the words of Paul, we become separated from the life of God. And this book of Ecclesiastes is a story of a man who has turned away from God. And now he's saying this. 
Having taken God out of my life, I am now looking at life under the sun, just as it appears to be, purely materialistically, purely physically. And you know what? I feel like a migrating bird who has lost its instinct. I don't know how to live. But friends, there is wonderful, wonderful hope. Ephesians 2 and 4. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And I love this because Paul is saying, listen, even though you lost your governing force, even though your life clearly demonstrates a life out of balance, a life marred by what the Bible calls sin, we have been made alive with Christ. And I love the wording he used. He doesn't say alive because of Christ. He says alive with Christ. God puts Jesus into our experience by his Holy Spirit. And friends, that is the only thing that can make us truly alive. And as a footnote, it doesn't suddenly mean life's going to be perfect because life has very, very real pains. And we're going to talk about that through this series. There are very real struggles. But what it does mean is this, that in spite of the struggles, in spite of the stuff that life throws at me, I can put my head on a pillow at night and rest easy, knowing that even in the midst of sometimes the messiness of life, life still, in essence, makes sense because I'm connected to my life force. I'm connected to that governing force. I'm connecting to God. And it is God and my experience of God that makes life make sense. Psalm 62 and 1, my soul finds rest in God alone. And as the team comes back, friends, know this. It's not just, about, it's not just believing about God. It's not a head thing. It is receiving the very life of God, being born again, as Sarah was talking about earlier, born again of the Spirit of God, knowing it is His life that empowers us. It is His life that equips us. 1 John 5 and 11, God has given us eternal life and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Friends, we talked about this last week and I'll, I'll remind us of this as we close. When we talk about eternal life, Jesus doesn't just give us eternal life. Jesus is eternal life. Last week we looked at the fact that eternal life is not talking about a destination. Eternal life is, well, I put my faith in God and I go to heaven when I die. That's unfortunately what a lot of people believe about eternal life. But when Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes 3 and 11, God has set eternity in the hearts of man. The literal meaning is that God has put within every human being a desire to know him. Which means eternal life doesn't start when you die, it starts now. Eternal life is about knowing God now. It is about living in a daily relationship with Him that restores that governing force within me that makes life begin to make sense again. It restores that 
guidance system. It, it removes that sense of lostness that so many people speak of. It brings back a sense of balance and purpose and significance. The things that we try to find through other pursuits as Solomon did. The pursuit of pleasure and power and prosperity. And maybe it is for you this morning that you've been searching. Maybe you've been trying to find yourself in all the wrong places. Maybe you resonate with some of the writings of Solomon when he speaks of incredible emptiness. Maybe you need to rediscover or to discover that governing force that's been missing. 